Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 51, Let's Take a Field Trip, in which we catch up on developments in theoretical inorganic chemistry in the mid-20th century. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Much of 20th century chemistry in the popular view seems to focus on developments in organic and biochemistry. But simultaneously, there were things happening in the inorganic world as well. A lot of inorganic chemistry is devoted to understanding, for example, the structure and properties of inorganic compounds that have a metal atom, a positively charged ion, a cation in the center, surrounded by other small molecules or groups, which are called ligands. The entire unit of central metal atom plus the ligands surrounding it is called a coordination complex. Bonding between the central metal atom and the ligands often involves the donation of electron pairs from the ligands to the metal atom. The word ligand itself dates as late as around 1949 from Latin ligandus, that which binds or ties together, from the Latin verb ligare, to bind. Coordination complexes were known for centuries beforehand, however, though not their molecular structure. We already mentioned many episodes ago the first modern artificial dye, Prussian blue, which is a coordination complex of iron atoms and cyanide groups in a complicated crystal arrangement. 19th century chemists who invented the first models of coordination complexes include Swedish chemist Christian Blomstrand, Danish chemist Sophus Jurgensen, and finally Swiss chemist Alfred Werner, who came up with the best model for these complexes in 1893, largely still in use today, though he didn't have the understanding about electron bonding. By 1911, Werner was able to demonstrate the existence of optical chirality and stereoisomers of the large complex cation called hexol with a plus 6 charge, containing 4 cobalt atoms, 12 ammonia molecules, and 6 hydroxide anions. The two optical isomers Werner isolated are mirror images of each other. With this work, Werner demolished the idea that only carbon compounds could have chiral molecules. Coordination compounds are known for often having bright colors and special magnetic properties, all of which need to be properly explained by a good chemical theory. But decent understanding of coordination complexes required the knowledge of electrons as bonding agents in molecules, and how those electrons arrange themselves quantum mechanically in orbitals around all the nuclei. Therefore, it wasn't until the late 1920s that the first theory of inorganic complexes really gained ground. Recall 
that modeling molecules from a fully quantum mechanical perspective using equations just is not possible. No equation will solve the problem for more than two particles, and complexes have way more particles, including atomic nuclei and electrons, than that. So chemists sought simplified, generalized rules and ideas to get around the equation problem. The idea for how to handle this first was published by Jean Becquerel in 1929. He was the son of Antoine Becquerel who discovered radioactivity. The actual initial method was invented by the German-American physicist Hans Bethe shortly thereafter and is called crystal field theory. As an aside, in a later paper on cosmology called The Origin of Chemical Elements, published in 1948, an American graduate student, Ralph Alpher, discussed a model describing how the Big Bang would create elements in the correct amounts we see today. He published his paper with his doctoral advisor, Russian-American physicist George Gamow. On a lark, Gamow added his friend Hans Bethe to the author list in the paper so that the authors would be listed as Alpha, Beta, Gamow, like the Greek alphabet. Eventually, the paper came to be called colloquially the alphabetical article, and Alpha resented the addition of Beta's name, diluting his own contribution. In any case, who says that scientists have no sense of humor? So, back to our topic, crystal field theory. In it, Hans Bethe proposed the simplifying idea that metal ions, particularly transition metals, those metals in the center of the periodic table, that form coordination complexes, being cations, are under a strong influence from surrounding ions, namely, the ligands around the central metal ion. These ligands, with their own charge, form a so-called crystal field, an electrostatic field around the metal ion. What does the crystal field do? It affects the symmetry of the area. We've talked a bit about symmetry in terms of quantum mechanics and molecular structure. Here, the electrostatic or crystal field changes the symmetry of the molecule, actually reducing the symmetry of the central metal atom's orbitals. This shifts the energy levels of the various orbitals in predictable ways that affect the coordination complex's properties, be they chemical, optical, or magnetic. How does this operate in particular? We look at a transition metal cation in the center. Transition metals have their valence electrons in a set of 5d orbitals, all of which have complicated probability volumes because of the various nodes disallowing the electrons in certain places. These d orbitals have approximately the same energy if the ion were all alone. But the ion gets surrounded by ligands with their own electrons. As these ligand electrons approach the metal cation, they start to affect how the cation's own electrons operate. That is, the ligand's electrons modeled as a point charge to simplify more, change the metal cation's own orbital energies. 
the electrons all repel each other because they are all negative. Those orbital volumes further away from the ligands have their energies lowered, while those orbital volumes nearer the ligands have their energies raised because it's more unstable to keep electrons closer together. Things that affect how the orbital energies on the cation split up include what the metal ion is, the metal's oxidation state. We haven't talked about oxidation state, but I will say that it is a more modern representation of valence, how many electrons it has gained or lost. How the ligands arrange themselves around the central cation. How many ligands there are, or what we call the coordination number. And what kind of bonding there is from ligand to central cation. A slight modification to crystal field theory occurred in 1930 when Dutch physicist Hans Kramers came up with the Kramers degeneracy theorem. It showed that all molecules with an odd number of electrons had to have at least two energies of orbitals when you add a magnetic field. Crystal field theory, especially when expanded in 1932 by American physicist John Van Vleck, did a lot of excellent explaining of spectra, including colors of coordination complexes and magnetic properties. Magnetism of these compounds comes about because, as you fill up the readjusted d orbitals in the central cations with the appropriate number of electrons, and if you realize that the electrons act like they spin one direction or another, often the electrons will have spins unpaired up. Those compounds with unpaired electrons are called diamagnetic and are attracted to a magnet, like the oxygen molecule I mentioned a while back in an episode. Those compounds with paired electrons are called paramagnetic. It turns out that paramagnetic compounds are weakly repelled by a magnet. Crystal field theory explains whether a compound will be attracted or repelled by a magnet. Colors can be explained by the difference in various energy levels predicted by crystal field theory. As a photon with just the right energy hits an electron in a particular orbital, it can cause the electron to jump to an appropriate higher orbital. We say that the compound absorbs that particular wavelength of light and then exhibits a characteristic color. The major downside to crystal field theory is its simplification that ligands are treated as though they are unmoving point electric charges. We already know that's not really true. Electrons around any molecule form extended probability volumes we call orbitals, and the electrons are constantly moving around somewhere within those orbitals. Electrons aren't static or unmoving. Within a few years, by 1935, British chemists John Griffith and Leslie Orgel modified crystal field theory to incorporate some molecular orbital theory. Their whole scheme is called ligand field theory. By the way, John Griffith was the nephew of bacteriologist Frederick Griffith in our last episode, who found that something in dead bacteria could transform harmless bacteria into nasty bacteria, and that something was later found to be DNA. 
So, with ligand field theory, we now model a central transition metal's valence orbitals, which are the 5d orbitals, 1s orbital, and 3p orbitals. We also need to consider orbitals on the ligands. Are they sigma or pi bonds? Recall that pi bonds often stick out above and below the molecular plane. One bond I didn't mention before is the delta bond, which is even more complicated in shape than pi or sigma. Then we have to model how these molecular orbitals in the ligand approach the central cation, influence the orbitals to readjust their probability volumes, and perhaps even form new molecular orbitals. Let's consider one example, an octahedral complex. The shape is one of the basic solids, and known to those of you who play Dungeons and Dragons, the octahedron. It is made up of six ligands surrounding a central metal atom. This is actually the most common shape for coordination complexes. Based on this shape, we see that the ligands conveniently sit along the x, y, and z axes if we put the central metal atom at the origin of all these axes. After some mathematical work which you need to be an advanced undergraduate student to consider, you find that two of the central metal's d orbitals plus s and p orbitals do the bonding, making six bonding orbitals. Given that this is a modification of molecular orbital theory, we also need to include six antibonding orbitals. The bonding orbitals are sigma orbitals. You can also form a pi bond between the metal and the ligands. It starts getting more complicated because you need to include symmetry properties of the orbitals now. That is, you can't combine a positive blob of an orbital with a negative blob on the other, or the orbitals cancel each other out. While crystal field theory, like Pauling's valence bond theory, is generally easier and more intuitive, ligand field theory is more accurate, but harder to do. We've talked about so-called Werner complexes, or classical complexes. Transition metals are the central atom, and typical ligands are water, ammonia, chloride anions, cyanide anions, and such. Many other shapes of coordination complexes than just octahedral are possible. Tetrahedral, with four ligands, are known, as are square pyramidal, like an Egyptian pyramid with a square bottom and four sides, with four ligands. Dodecahedral, just like the D&D dice, with eight ligands, as are triangular, that is, three ligands in a triangle enclosing a central metal. Structures are known for anything from two ligands up to nine ligands, which is a capped square antiprism, if you must know. But there are other complexes. Some coordination complexes are organometallic, with a hydrocarbon ligand. There are bioinorganic complexes. We've talked about heme, with a central iron atom complexed to an organic nitrogen ring, and chlorophyll with a central magnesium atom complexed to an organic nitrogen ring. Here, magnesium isn't even a transition metal. Many minerals in the geological world are coordination complexes, but extended outward into an almost infinite array to become a macroscopic size we can see and hold.
I mentioned that crystal field theory began in 1929, and ligand field theory started in 1935. However, chemists weren't used to all the symmetry and group theory, and took little or no notice of this work in the 1930s. All was interrupted during World War II. Only in the late 1940s and early 1950s did these ideas really begin to spread around the chemical world. C.J. Ballhausen, in his 1979 article in Journal of Chemical Education, notes that these ideas really, if we might say, crystallized into chemistry in the years 1951 through 1956. A renaissance in the world of inorganic chemistry occurred as inorganic chemists realized how the theoretical treatment of bonding could help them understand coordination complexes, and As Ballhausen notes, electronic computers at this time began gaining enough power to begin modeling what is impossible to solve exactly with an equation. We may, in a future episode, discuss the developments in computational chemistry. In the meantime, from this point in chemical history on, inorganic chemistry textbooks, including the ones I have, usually contain detailed theoretical treatments. Involving crystal fields and ligand fields. From his article, Ballhausen's quote here seems especially appropriate and amplifies what I have been saying. Quote, Today we realize that the whole of chemistry is one huge manifestation of quantum phenomena. Without a background in quantum theory, it is impossible to possess an in-depth understanding of chemistry. The elucidation of chemical phenomena by means of the quantum laws is now left to the chemists. The solid-state physicists do not have the necessary chemical background, and the high-energy physicists are not interested in electrons. Let us therefore think in deep gratitude and admiration of those pioneering physicists who opened the doors to modern chemistry. They are the giants on whose shoulders theoretical chemistry is standing. In the meantime, I want to mention one important compound that inorganic chemists discovered at this time: ferrocene. It's actually an organometallic compound. The story takes place in late 1951, simultaneously with the race to DNA, when two independent research groups published articles on a new orange-colored compound, C10H10Fe. One group. Thomas Keeley and Peter Pawson at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, in the December fifteenth, nineteen fifty-one issue of the journal Nature, suggested that the structure was a five-carbon ring connected to an iron atom connected to another five-carbon ring, all in a line. The other group, Samuel Miller, John Tebbeth, and John Tremaine at the firm British Oxygen, published shortly thereafter in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Proposed the same structure. Interestingly, the Pennsylvania group published in a British journal, while the British group published in an American journal. This structure was shown to be wrong by three groups in 1952. On April 20th, Jeffrey Wilkinson and Robert Woodward published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Ernst Fischer published an article in Zeitschrift für Naturforschung. 
And Philip Eiland and Ray Papinski published a letter to the Journal of the American Chemical Society on October 5th. The three methods by three groups to determine the correct structure were, first, by Wilkinson and Woodward, observed that ferrocene reacted chemically more like benzene and other aromatic molecules. Second, Fisher deduced a double cone shape. Third, Eiland and Papinski ran the crystal through X-ray imaging. The correct structure is really a sandwich, that is, a five-member hydrocarbon ring called a cyclopentadienyl group above and one below the iron atom, sandwiching the iron atom in the middle. This structure was so surprising that chemists had to rework bonding theory to explain it. It also began a new era in sandwich compounds of various sorts, with a metal such as iron, chromium, or cobalt between the two hydrocarbon rings, and even multi-decker sandwich molecules. Along with ligand field theory, it revitalized inorganic chemistry. The name sandwich compound itself was first used in a 1956 paper. A 1991 study showed that the rings can rotate while remaining in their sandwich formation fairly easily. In our next episode, we talk about advances in synthetic organic chemistry, that is, artificially synthesizing all sorts of organic and biochemical molecules in the 1950s, most notably by Robert Woodward. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.